Uh, so my talk uh, this morning is Evaluating Calvin, a Critique of On Civil Government. John Calvin's On Civil Government from Book 4, Chapter 20 of his Institutes of the Christian Religion is one of, if not the foundational text in Reformed political theory. Yet the legacy of Calvin's political thought is anything but uh, uncontroversial. While honored by some of, uh, as a key influencer for liberty in modern times, he has been decried by others for his retrograde and authoritarian views. In this paper, my purpose is not to provide an overall evaluation of Calvin's political writings, as important and necessary as that would be to get a fair assessment of uh, what the man has to offer to a Christian political theory. Nor is my purpose to consider the value of his political thought in light of his immediate historical context. Again, as necessary as that would be to fully appreciate his wisdom in uh, adapting unchanging biblical truth to the particular unique circumstances um, that Reformed Christians were facing in his day. Rather, my purpose is the admittedly limited yet also necessary one of simply evaluating Calvin's treatise on civil government as what it presents itself to be, namely as a biblical political philosophy, and therefore as one of the timeless institutes of the Christian religion. Uh, I want to begin with a summary of Calvin's on civil government, which opens with one of um, his most well-known political ideas, his doctrine of the two kingdoms. Uh, according to Calvin, as man has two natures, corporeal and spiritual, so God has ordained two kingdoms, a spiritual kingdom to rule over man's soul and an earthly kingdom to rule over his body and to deal with matters of external justice. Our freedom in Christ is a spiritual freedom that is perfectly compatible, Calvin argues, with our political subjection. We must take care, therefore, not to extend the freedom that we have in Christ into areas where it doesn't apply. While our spiritual liberty has no necessary application to our political freedom, civil government does have an authority in the spiritual realm for the end of government, Calvin says, is to, quote, foster and protect the external worship of God, defend pure doctrine and the good condition of the church, end quote. The civil order provided by civil government is the basis of all other earthly goods, according to Calvin, and is responsible um, for, uh, quote, preventing idolatries, sacrileges against the name of God, blasphemies against his truth, and other scandals to religion from emerging into the light of day and spreading among the people. In short, it, up it upholds a public form of religion amongst Christians and humanity amongst men, end quote. Calvin divides his discussion uh, in non-civil government into three parts. The first is on the magistrate as the defender of the laws. The second is on the laws themselves, according to which the magistrate governs. And the third is on the people who are governed by the laws and who obey the magistrate. Magistrates have their authority from God, um, and they represent his person and act in his place. Calvin calls civil authority, quote, by far the most sacred and honorable of all human vocations. Civil authority is the most sacred and honorable of all human vocations. To reject the authority of the magistrate, Calvin says, is to reject the authority of God himself. Uh, he says a mixed representative pro-liberty constitution is ideal, and a people under such a government is the most fortunate, and they have a duty, quote, 
to do their utmost to preserve and maintain it, end quote. And rulers of such a regime, this pro-liberty constitutional regime, who do not, quote, make every effort to prevent any violation of that liberty are traitors, traitors to their office and to their country, end quote. Where such a pro-liberty constitution does not exist, however, the people have no business trying to bring one about. It would be utterly pointless, he says, for private men who have no right to decide how any commonwealth whatsoever is to be ordered to debate what would be the best state of the commonwealth in the place where they live, end quote. Uh, Calvin favors a constitution, in other words, in which the authority of the magistrate is placed in check, but only by other magistrates and not by the people themselves. It was a mixed constitution that God had established for his people prior to the Davidic monarchy, as Calvin uh, reads that period prior to David. Um, the duties of magistrates extend to both tables of the Decalogue, including especially the right worship of God, something that Calvin commends even the pagan writers for understanding. Might come back to that later. I find that rather ironic. Um, Magistrates who merely limit their duties to that of, quote, doing justice amongst men without any concern for God stand convicted of stupidity. So there's Calvin's assessment of libertarianism. It is stupidity. Um, under the second table, Calvin includes the magistrate's uh, duty uh, to, quote, relieve those in poverty and want, end quote. So Calvin would support some form of self social welfare. Um, when the magistrate sheds blood, it is God himself who is uh, shedding it. A magistrate may prohibit his subjects from carrying weapons, making Calvin at least somewhat pro-gun control. I um, just wanted to get that in there for some of you. In his discussion of the magistrates, specific the magistrate's specific duty to wage war, Calvin indicates that it is the people who uh, confer on rulers their power. Um, at least he says that in, in one place. Uh, while Christ's coming didn't remove the magistrate's duty to wield the sword, the moral standard for wielding the sword is even higher for the Christian magistrate than for the pagan. Uh, taxation is legitimate, and Calvin allows the magistrate to use state funds to even live sumptuously as befitting their office, though he also urges moderation. Um, you work that out. Um, Regarding laws in a Christian commonwealth, Calvin takes, uh, those aren't in the same passage, right? I'm pulling from different parts of the civil government in case people, people's memory isn't as good as mine when I'm reading Calvin. Um, regarding laws in a Christian commonwealth, Calvin takes the classical natural law view of rejecting theonomy, which he calls dangerous and seditious and false and stupid, okay? Arguing instead that the Mosaic law applies today only in its moral and not in its judicial precepts. Um, at least not necessarily in its judicial precepts. The task of legislators today is to legislate in a way expedient for their particular context, measuring their laws against the law of love. The judicial precepts of the Mosaic law apply today only according to their general equity, which is determined by natural law, which is the true basis of human law. So he has, shares that with, with Aquinas, as we talked about last night. Turning finally to the people, Calvin asserts over against Luther, or I think he's got, I think he's got Luther in mind here. Um, Calvin asserts that the civil magistrate represents a positive good and is not an irre irrelevance for Christians. Um, 
right? Luther, at least in some of his earlier writings, uh, the civil magistrate, it's, it's only for non-Christians. Christian, it, it really has no, no application to Christians. Calvin takes uh, this view so far as to say that Christians may even take their brothers to court, arguing that the Apostle Paul's prohibition of such an action in 1 Corinthians 6 as limited to the Corinthian, is limited to the Corinthian church's unique circumstance. Uh, the first duty of subjects is to hold the office of magistrate in the highest possible regard, quote. Um, to resist a magistrate is, again, to resist God, nor should private persons try to meddle in public matters or, quote, undertake anything, whatever, of a public nature, end quote. Even tyrants are true princes and are therefore to be obeyed and not resisted, as we see, he says, in the case of Nebuchadnezzar. Christians are to merely use the occasion um, if they're under a tyranny, um, to remember and repent of their own sins and pray for deliverance. Um, for God does at times uh, raise up avengers, uh, Calvin allows, who have a lawful calling from God to punish tyrants. Uh, more generally, the task of correcting tyrannical magistrates belongs to lesser magistrates whose duty it is to protect the people the only instance in which the people or a private individual may resist a magistrate is when the magistrate commands outright idolatry. Okay, so that's, that's an overview of, of on civil government. Well, with this summary in hand, let's uh, turn now to my critique. I have lots of criticisms of Calvin. I'm just gonna give you um, the, the main ones. Um, I have lots of, lest there be any confusion, I have lots of appreciation for Calvin, but um, talking to a reformed audience, um, we don't, we don't, We'll, we'll take the appreciation for granted. We're, we're talking about criticisms here. Uh, while there are a number of concerns, I, I, as I say, I, that I have with various arguments and points um, that Calvin makes, my main criticism is this. While Calvin gives the appearance of intending to found civil government in a truly um, philosophical, bottom-up uh, fashion, that is to say, building uh, and counting for civil government, um, rooting it, uh, founding it upon the principles of man's rational, moral, and social nature, uh, the reality I submit is something different, and that a more accurate picture would be to see Calvin as suspending civil government from above, right? So two metaphors, I guess, spatial metaphors I'm suggesting is build, doing political philosophies, building things from the bottom up, um, accounting for civil government in terms of the nature of the world as God has made it, versus this more you might call it theological, but in a narrow sense of just seeing civil government as suspended from above um, on, in, in, um, in a kind of divine right sort of way. Um, okay, so, so Calvin is, I think, suspending, he ends up suspending civil government from above, as it were, from a divine fiat, decreeing that political authority belongs to whomover, whomever happens to be in power. Calvin's first statement along these lines uh, may be found in his caution against those who might use political ideals as a justification for bringing about a change in one's present form of government. On the contrary, Calvin writes, quote, the will of God is reason enough. The will of God is reason enough, right? You want to think philosophically about politics. Um, what reasons are you going to appeal to to explain why things are the way they are? The will of God. How has God just happened to set things up? That's, that's all the reason that you need. The will of God is reason enough, for if it has seemed good to him to set kings above kingdoms and senators or other officials over free commonwealths, then we for our part must be obedient and dutiful to whomever he has appointed ruler over the place we inhabit." End quote. 
The result I submit is a form of uh, what I call theopolitical fatalism, according to which it is whomever God has actually put in power that determines for us whom it is that God wants to continue to be in power, right? Calvinism is often accused of being fatalistic, like the doctrine of predestination. I don't think it is because uh, fatalism is about the end being determined regardless of the means. Um, and Calvinism, uh, a proper understanding of predestination, God doesn't just predestine the end, he predestines the means. When it comes to um, political theory, I think the charge of fatalism um, is in fact accurate, that there's God ordains the end and it almost doesn't matter what the means are. Uh, the best illustration of uh, this principle of theopolitical fatalism, Calvin cites um, uh, the case of Nebuchadnezzar to make the point that a people must be obedient even to usurping and tyrannical kings. He writes this, and this is passage number one in your handout. Uh, Jeremiah 27, verses 5 and following, resolves the question in the clearest possible fashion. The Lord says, I have given all these lands into uh, the hands of my servant Nebuchadnezzar. Every people and kingdom which has not served the king of Babel, I shall visit that people with sword, hunger, and pestilence. Therefore, serve the king of Babylon live. Okay, that's just Calvin quoting Jeremiah there. Here's his comment. We see here the degree of obedience and honor the Lord wished to be accorded to that loathsome and cruel tyrant. Here's the money phrase. And merely because he was in possession of the kingship. It was this possession alone which showed that he, Nebuchadnezzar, had been placed on the royal throne by divine decree and had been vested with royal majesty, which must remain inviolate. If we keep firmly in mind that even the very worst kings are appointed by the same decree, which establishes the authority of kings uh, in general, then we will never permit ourselves the seditious idea that a king is to be treated according to his deserts, or that we need not obey a king who does not conduct himself towards us like a king. For Calvin, then, the requirement that God laid upon the Jews to submit to a wicked and usurping foreign power was not a function of their unique historical circumstance, a punishment, for example, for their own past disobedience, um, but is taken instead as a general rule that people must not rebel against those who have the power, and with that power, the right to rule over them. In contrast, then, to his own reading of the law of God revealed to Moses, which God, Calvin historically relativizes as being applicable to the Israelites, but not necessarily to Christians, Calvin absolutizes the case of Nebuchadnezzar to infer from it the general principle that God's people must always submit to even ungodly tyrants, not just ungodly tyrants, ungodly foreign tyrants. As to how this right to rule is determined, Calvin is unambiguous. Possession is 100% of ownership. As he says uh, above of Nebuchadnezzar, it was merely because he was in possession of the kingship that alone showed that he had been placed on the royal throne by divine decree. As he states the same qualification more generally later, and I think this is passage number two in your handout, um, he says this, thus we cannot doubt that we must serve anyone who has manifestly had kingship conferred on him. In the very act of raising someone to the exalted rank of king, the Lord thereby reveals to us that it is his will that that person should rule. In this, uh, we may see that Calvin is, um, I think, not so far from Thrasymachus or Machiavelli or other, uh, or even Hobbes. Um, the right to rule amounts to little more than the power to rule. 
A key feature of what I'm here distinguishing as Calvin's theopolitical fatalism is this idea that the right, which is to say the power to rule, is in principle largely, if not completely, dissociable from how that right or power was obtained or how it is exercised. He says that despite the very natural fact that, quote, mankind has always had an innate hatred and detestation of tyrants, just as it loves and venerates lawful kings, nevertheless, and uh, let's see, I don't think I have this quote here. Um, did I mix up the quotes? I did. Um, so the last quote I wrote you was, well, um, Okay, this is quote number two. Um, <laughs> he says this, uh, we are to be subject not only to the authority of those princes who do their duty toward us as they should and uprightly, but to all of them, however they came by their office, even if the very last thing they do is to act like true princes. For even though the Lord declares that the office of magistrate is the greatest gift of his goodness for the preservation of mankind, and although he himself sets the boundaries within which they are to confine themselves, nonetheless, he also declares at the same time that whatever they are and however they govern, it is from him alone that they derive their authority. Okay, again, not, no bottom-up, no, how do we know that this person's in authority? Do they have power? Question answered. By tracing a ruler's authority directly to God and to the exclusion of any considerations as to how that authority was acquired or how it is exercised, Calvin's political thought here ceases to be, I think, a genuine political philosophy in any meaningful sense of the word. As the order of man's moral, rational, and social nature is allowed to be forever overruled by the theological trump card of divine will or fiat. In this, Calvin, I think, has played us a game of bait and switch. From a properly political philosophy of civil government, having its beginnings in a consideration of human nature, the human good of civil society, natural law, and justice. Right, these are all things Calvin also talks about. He has now delivered us over to a form of inscrutable theological fatalism in which political authority is identified and justified not by how it is acquired or even to what end it is exercised, but by nothing more than power exercised for its own sake. To be sure, as was mentioned earlier, Calvin does, not, does allow that God sometimes raises up avengers from amongst his servants, designated and commanded by him to punish the tyranny of vicious men and to deliver the oppressed from their wretched calamities. He goes on to say that these avengers, quote, were summoned to punish these crimes by a lawful calling from God. They did not in the least violate the majesty with which kings are endowed by divine ordinance when they, came, when they took up arms against kings, end quote. But here's the question, how do we know that these avengers had a lawful calling from God, given Calvin's own prohibition against resisting tyrannical governments. Once again, Calvin gives us no philosophical principles to work with and by which we might determine our moral duties. Instead, he gives us the raw mechanics of power politics. Quote, armed by heaven, they, these avengers, subjugated a lesser power by a greater power in just the same way that kings are entitled to punish their own officials, end quote. In short, you will know God's ordained deliverers and whether or not they should have ever begun their resistance in the first place by whether or not their resistance has proven successful after the fact. <laughs> by their fruit you will know them, but you can't know what their fruit is until after you've eaten it and seen whether it has poisoned you. One of the most chilling statements concerning Calvin's absolutism, so changing topics a little bit here, um, is the analogy he draws between the submission that wives and children owe to abusive husbands and fathers uh, husbands and fathers, and the submission that a people owe to an abusive ruler. Calvin writes this, and this is on the back side, number three. 
Uh, he says, but if you go on to infer that just governments are to be repaid by obedience, only just governments, your reasoning is stupid. Calvin likes that word, likes calling people stupid. Um, what if husbands treat their wives with great abusiveness, even though they have been commanded to love and spare them as weak vessels? Shall children then be less obedient to their parents or wives to their husbands on that account? But children and wives are subject to the wicked and the undutiful just as much as to the upright and dutiful. Hence, if we are tormented by a cruel ruler, if we are fleeced by a rapacious and extravagant one, if we suffer neglect from an indolent one or afflicted for our godliness by an impious and sacrilegious one, let us first call to mind our sins. For it is those without a doubt which God is punishing by such scourges. Not many reformed pastors and teachers today, I wager, who embrace Calvin's views on political authority would tolerate his same teaching as it applies in the home with respect to abuse of husbands and fathers. If they don't, uh, I suspect it is because they implicitly recognize that it is Calvin's reasoning for blind obeisance to abusive leaders that is in fact stupid. This extreme position of Calvin's is unfortunate, all the more so because um, it is uh, unnecessary for elsewhere and on different matters. He gives the kind of sound principles that might also have been used to help give a more nuanced account of when tyrannical rulers might be resisted. An example is Calvin's insistence on moderation and prudence in war. He writes, and even though arms must indeed sometimes be taken up against an enemy, that is an armed criminal, magistrates are not to snatch at every casual opportunity. Even if an occasion presents itself, they should not avail themselves of it unless compelled by a necessity which permits no escape. In both war and punishing criminals, magistrates must not allow themselves to be carried away by any private passion but must be guided by a concern for the public good alone. To do anything else is the worst abuse of their authority, which is given to them for the benefit and service of others and not for their own, end quote. So here's my point. If war against those over whom a king has no lawful authority or jurisdiction may be permitted on natural law, prudential grounds, uh, then why not develop an analogous principles, as again, later reformed thinkers, such as George Buchanan would, develop late, uh, principles for when a people might not likewise rise up and against, uh, against a tyrannical ruler who is no less a threat to civic order. Other inconsistencies in Calvin's account might be mentioned briefly here, despite his expressed valuation of real tangible political liberty under a constitutional form of government, Calvin also shows himself willingly to completely spiritualize this liberty and relegate it to the inner recesses of the soul in the event that it should ever threaten to manifest itself publicly in a way that might lead to conflict with the powers that be. Thus, uh, the same Calvin who told us that we should be constantly occupied in the preservation of our liberty and who maligned those rulers who violate that liberty of which they have been appointed guardians, also tells us that, quote, we must therefore take great care to confine that liberty which is promised and offered to us in Christ within its own limits. And that the Apostle Paul teaches that, uh, quote, whatever your status or condition in the world is and under the laws of which your nation which nation you live, they're a matter of indifference for the kingdom of Christ in no way, in no way inheres in such things. Having appealed to the natural law principles of civil order and liberty to establish the legitimacy of government, principles apart from which human nature for Calvin was said to no longer be human nature, Calvin is here content to spiritualize, spiritualize them away as a matter of mere adiaphora in favor of the uncompromising demands of raw political subservience. All right, well, um, let me conclude. Reformed Christians, of which I am happy to count myself as one, need to come to terms with 
uh, and be ruthlessly honest about our own intellectual sources. Uh, Calvinists have much to be thankful for and proud of for the gift of the church, to the church that was John Calvin. What is more, there is much in non-civil government to agree with and admire. But we must not let our gratitude for our forefathers in the faith blind us to their, blind, their own blind spots. My own assessment of Calvin's political thought is this. Uh, if I were a tyrant ruling over a Calvinist population, aiming to keep them permanently subjugated to my whim and will, Calvin's treatise on civil government would be my propaganda of choice. For this reason, therefore, I contend that as a work of political philosophy, it is not suitable for people who wish to take seriously and to be obedient to their God-given charge to be free and not to submit themselves to a yoke of slavery. Instead of a political philosophy rooted in a conception of human nature that encourages the flourishing of free thinking and acting beings, I think Calvin leaves us with a form of political thought that is better suited for slaves, useful tools, and happy fools of the state. As he enjoins us, quote, to a self-restraint which private persons ought to impose on themselves in public matters, neither meddling in public matters, nor intruding rashly on the magistrate's preserve, nor undertaking anything whatever of a public nature." End quote. Far more salutary, I think, are the spirit of the words with which Calvin himself concludes his on civil government when he writes, quote, "'Our redemption has been purchased at so high a price in order that we might not become slaves to the wicked desires of men. Still less should we submit to their ungodliness." Thank you.